heard from Geetanjali earlier in the panel, but she's now going to, to critique her own uh, comments made at the panel to some extent. Yeah, isn't it a good law school skill that you can argue both sides <laughs> of the equation? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, the panel, the earlier panel was looking at the importance of uh, gender-specific funds and the importance of how these gender-specific funds, both symbolically and in, in reality, create impact for uh, women entrepreneurship and uh, women in business. But Kitanjali is now looking at it from a critical, more academic point of view as to how great this impact can be when the entire industry is over $4.6 trillion and an average gender fund is a few million uh, dollars. As Vanessa mentioned, her own micro fund was $22, $22 million. So when we talk of gender-only funds, or uh, gender-specific funds, are we lulling ourselves into a sense of complacency and feeling that this is really impactful and successful? But so that is the hard question that you are asking, because remember, we started this day by saying the importance of this institute is that we are really going to pierce the veil of uh, uh, ignorance that surrounds us about these issues of um, what it is to be inclusive in terms of entrepreneurship, business, development, finance, technology, and in terms of what it means to be inclusive in innovation. And in all of these ideas, how can we be more inclusive? And against the backdrop of a changing world, an extraordinary moment for women, but also an extraordinary moment right now at the UN with world leaders gathering to address some of these issues of the future of jobs and the future of gender equality and how the two can converge. So you have Geetanjali's impressive bio. There's nothing that she has not done. <laughs> and she's a serial entrepreneur, but who is also very reflective and who uses that reflection to critique her own work, to critique the work of others, and to set new standards in, uh, in uh, what it is to be inclusive in entrepreneurship in innovation and in uh, growing new ideas. So she's also part of, I think, one of the most important United Nations platforms, the UN Equals Leadership Coalition, which calls itself an unstoppable global movement. I think it is the first time the UN would use such revolutionary uh, <laughs> vernacular, because the UN that I know is so change resistant, that it would never call itself unstoppable, because everything that the UN does is so slow and so incremental that this kind of force of an unstoppable movement gives me a sense that the UN is really revolutionary. And maybe it is, because Geetanjali is part of this unstoppable movement on digitizing and bringing women to the digital age, which is really the fourth revolution. Absolutely. that the women have been so far not part of, but we need to be a part of. So I want you, you are an unstoppable revolution and an unstoppable movement, Geetanjali, to give us a sense of what it was this whole day and a critique of that. So I think the question, um, Ursula Weinhorn, who is one, my partner, uh, one of my partners at Equals, and I were discussing this just before I came, and I said, why are we having this conversation in 2018? You know, that was my question. I said, women got the right to vote some in 1920, and around 1920s. 
Why are we still having this conversation in 2018? So with that lead in, let me start by putting some, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a data hound. I love putting the numbers up there because they keep me grounded. And they show me reality and I don't drink any Kool-Aid. So let's just start with the problem at hand first. The future of jobs is radically different. We are going through the fourth industrial revolution. And uh, these are numbers actually from the World Economic Forum, um, you know, as well as a couple of research firms. But it shows that we are moving to this technocentric world. And unfortunately, as we move to this technocentric wo world, women are far more at risk with the computerization. In fact, uh, the statistics are that women basically hold nearly 60% of the jobs today that are facing a high risk of computerization. So as we go through the fourth industrial revolution, uh, we, are we are seeing an excessive risk towards 50% of the population. So while the technology industry will continue to see relatively high growth, women are less advantaged in the uh, technology industry. Uh, the numbers for you know some of the the, the, the leading companies like Google etc put the number about 15%. I think that's actually generous. Those numbers are much much lower when you go into an area like technology investing. In VC investing, women founders get less than 2% of funding, and I'm going to distinguish between women founders and women senior leaders. If you add the two of them together, you get about 6%, which are the numbers that were quoted in this group. And as this revolution goes through women are projected to gain only one STEM job for every 20 lost jobs. In comparison, uh, men are stated to gain one STEM job for every four lost jobs. So what you are going to see is a large number of women being you know, cut out of the workforce. And these statistics are persistent. They con women continue to be underrepresented at all levels of the corporate pipeline. And you see a steady decline from entry level all the way down to the C-suite. In the broad-based pipeline, this goes down from about 36% at the entry level all the way down to 19%. The numbers for technology are much lower, and they drop to about 3%. So as it turns out, the quit rates for women in technology are near 50%. 50% of women who are in STEM jobs quit their jobs. That's actually terrible. Right, which is, and it is particularly ironic because we don't, you know, I think the number, the percentage of women who are getting STEM degrees is actually fairly high. What kills us is the quit rates. And what is tragic is these women don't use their skills because once they quit, it turns out those women don't have any options in the entrepreneurial system either. So 50% quit. And then if you go back and you look at um, you know, the VC industry, which invests in entrepreneur, uh, turns out 77% is technology, so it's predominantly technology. And of that, only about 2% of women founders, um, you know, are, are, are funded by VCs. So, you know, you see a radical drop off. And there's a big disproportionality in gender and diversity, uh, gender diversity and participation in the private capital ecosystem. So, for instance, 97% of venture-funded businesses have male CEOs. Um, only 6% of VC investment professionals are women, which is, in fact, a decline from 10% in 1999. These are from the Kaufman Foundation. Seed funding 
actually has slightly better statistics, uh, but uh, you know, with about 33%. But even there, you see some very interesting um, uh, numbers, which is women with seed funding investment has sort of still stagnated around 4% of total applications, despite a dramatic increase in the number of women seed stage inv investors. So, you know, what it says is the social norms, the way they are, is women don't invest in other women, which is actually kind of tragic. Um, and 90% of portfolio investments in VC have 0% women in leadership. So, in fact, and people have mentioned this before, women entrepreneurs have a less likelihood of getting funded. They've done studies. They've found there is systematic bias in terms of how they are regarded. And even the regulatory environment, and I think this is particularly relevant from the perspective of a law school, is today, and this is 2018, and that's it comes back to my question, why are we asking this question now? Uh, to even today, sexual harassment regulation in 50 states in the United States and uh, the majority of the companies, uh, countries globally, I think this is an older version of my slides, but anyway, um, it, do, do not cover venture capitalists and other private investors. Um, only in 2017 did California propose, uh, come up with a, a proposal by Senator Jackson to modify the sexual harassment statute so that it covers sexual harassment between entrepreneurs and potential investors. Today in the United States, it's mostly legal for a VC to harass an entrepreneur, believe it or not. <laughs> so anyway, and if you look at the current law, it specifies doctor-patient and attorney-client relationships, but does not uh, cover entrepreneurs and potential investors. So we have a poor regulatory framework. But having said that, women it isn't because women are inherently bad investments. In fact, there is no shortage of evidence to say that women are, you know, there are, uh, there are very strong reasons for investing in women because they deliver compelling business performance. So if we go according to US government statistics, more than half the businesses and, um, are formed by women and two thirds of entrepreneurial owners are women. Women, interestingly, have a capital efficiency that is the dollar to get you know, a dollar of revenue, that is two times that of men. So it may be a side effect of the fact that they get less money and they make it work, or it may be that they're fundamentally better at you know, taking a dollar further, but they are a much better bet in terms of capital efficiency. And funnily enough, contrary to what you hear from a lot of investors, uh, that, oh, women don't have high growth businesses, a much larger percentage of women-owned businesses are high growth, which is growing at greater than 30% than male-owned businesses. It's 58% versus 52%. So, you know, when you start looking at these statistics, it's more than that. In fact, it isn't just about women being better. When you get into diverse environments where you have both men and women bringing the best potential to the table, it turns out gender diversity overall is good for business. More diverse teams are more engaged, they're more ambitious, they're more resolute. Uh, according to Catalyst, um, women, diverse teams, that is, you know, companies, Fortune 500 companies with more, at least three female directors, have a 53% increase in return on equity. So that's a huge jump in financial terms. 
uh, BCG came up with a study which showed that uh, companies with av uh, above average diversity on their leadership teams are 19% more innovative. They just have more innovative revenue. They create more innovative products. And uh, I think Peterson Institute added that there was a 6% increase on net profit margin if more than 30% of a company's leadership roles was filled by women. Right? These are great business cases, especially in today's era of you know, razor-thin margins and push for profitability. I mean, you can get numbers like this by simply transforming your workforce. Furthermore, it turns out that bad practices, predatory practices, actually lead to worse investment results. Intuitively, this makes sense. Um, I'm going to explain these in a minute. This is some research we recently did. But, you know, um, it turns out, it, it makes logical sense that if you abuse your workforce and you do not gain the benefits and the potential of 50% of the human race, you know, you are going to have suboptimal results, right? That's logic, right? I'm <laughs> but for the first time, we're starting to see results that show that there's a very high correlation between, and a negative one, between uh, investment performance and predatory behavior. And that means things like sexual harassment, discrimination, etc. So firms, investment firms, that engage in that kind of behavior have poorer results, which means it's no longer a moral duty to, to, to address these issues. It's a fiduciary duty, because you are impacting investor returns, and you are violating your duty, therefore, as a manager. right? So, And if you look at it, it turns out this argument holds both at the micro as well as the macro. Um, research, and this is from um, you know, uh, Jim Leitner and, and his firm, show that even countries that have better um, you know, improved their female, the norms of gender and gender participation actually show an increase in their GDP performance. Their ROE, uh, ROI, equity returns, increases. So guess what? The numbers are giving us a message which nature, incidentally, has been telling us for millions of years, which is that diversity is good. In biology, biodiversity is an essential thing to make sure an entire ecosystem is not worked out. Because God did not intend for all of us to look identical, right? And, and that's what, and there, this, having that builds in resilience, builds in greater, uh, more diverse perspectives and better, you know, um, um, better analysis, better decision making into the species. So this is not something that's new. It's something that along the way we seem to have forgotten. So then, having made the case with numbers, my question is, so what can we do, right? And this sort of gets to, well, what are the types of actions we can take? There are, you know, broadly speaking, three different categories of actions that can be taken to create interventions that can create um, some kind of policy change, right? Some kind of uh, social change. The first is what the, the kind of actions that a, someone from a law school would like. Uh, the notion that you can put in protected covenants and governance clauses. 
So as an example, um, you know, one of the things is um, that people in the investment industry have been discussing is say in the context of sexual harassment, well, can you create, make it part of the diligence process, right? Can you require representations in every investment you make requiring that these practices not be con continued? Or can you put in place covenants that protect you financially by requiring a clawback, right? Should behavior that you consider you know, antithetical to your values be engaged in, right? But a lot of people argue that this process of setting the boundaries can be very drastic and lead more to fear, right? Uh, and in some ways, change people into, you know, remove the proactive impetus to do things. So then there is the second class of actions that you can take and interventions you can take. And these are essentially things that are related to creating incentives, economic, financial incentives. As an example, special set-asides for women-only funds or special set-asides for entrepreneurs of color. Um, and the argument is this is creating a positive economic incentive to make people do things. The, and you know, you're essentially encouraging broad-based behavior. The counter-argument to this kind of intervention is it's not broad-based enough. And this comes down to my argument, look, private capital by itself is a $4.6 trillion industry, right? Women are 50% of the workforce. Therefore, women should be able to access at least 2.3% of the capital that's out, 2.3, sorry, uh, 2.3 trillion of all the capital that's out there. Turns out women only access, women founders only access about 2% of uh, venture funding. And one argues that those statistics probably translate pretty equally to the rest of the private capital industry. So the question is, if I want to go to 50%, I'm currently at 2%. The average fund size in the industry is about a billion dollars, you know, which is about a thousand million. How on earth am I going to get to that number by making small 10, 20, 50 million dollar fund allocations, right? I don't see the roadmap. And is allocating too small an amount of capital going to have a counterproductive result because eventually you don't have follow on funding? Right? And then it perpetuates the myth that women are not successful because, not because they're not good enough to do it, but because they don't get enough money to do it. Right? If you run out of gas, you know, your car is going to stall midway through whether you like it or not. And it does not matter how much passion and energy and, and excitement and drive you have, you just don't have gas in the car. Right? So, but, and again, you know, so these two are you know, incentives and disincentives. But the question is, is this really the most powerful thing we can do? And that actually leads to the third category of interventions, which are much more long-term. And those are social and cultural transformations, actions that are taken to change the existing social norms and culture. And that has, comes down to the long-term changes that are required for people to understand the values that are important.
Now, changing values is a long-term game. It comes down to, you know, your parents, your childhood, the way you're brought up. You know, setting a new social norm is not something that's instantaneous. And many people argue that while this is great in theory, it takes too long, and eventually history is decided by a few tactical, history and presidential elections are decided by a few tactical moves. Tactics beat strategy every time. So the answer is all of the above. When we consider how we are going to create a change in this situation, we must consider a portfolio of interventions. In fact, the research tells us exactly the same thing that both carrots and sticks are necessary in managing public good. So this is some really cool research um, on the impact of punishment versus reward, right, in, in, in ensuring public goods, right? And what they found was really interesting was that you could not use a purely rewards-based system. Over time, a rewards-based system loses its effectiveness. So when you look at the blue lines, those are basically uh, the, 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 the contribution changes based on you know, putting only rewards into the system, which means our set-asides alone are not going to make the, make the system work. In fact, you need to have a legal framework. You need to have sanctions in order for public good to work. So let's go in and look at the kinds of things that you can do, though, and understand then we will talk about how to construct a portfolio. What are the kinds of things that you could do under protected covenants? Well, you could do diligence. Investment diligence could put in requirements into it. Like, for instance, you can diligence whether or not it turns out, um, even though um, you know, the, the link between things like sexual harassment and poor investment performance is well understood, 90% of investors don't even do diligence on it, right? Are we talking about, we're not talking about small percentages here. We're talking about like 45% differences in performance, right? So investment diligence. Um, you can put in impact requirements. Instead of merely looking at financial performance, you can look at a double bottom line and say your investor, the result your investor wants is not purely something which is a financial result in terms of IIR or TVPI, but it is a result that is also in terms of what impact you can deliver. Right? This is no different from what a government does. Right? Governments don't invest for financial performance. They invest for jobs. They invest for healthcare. They invest for education. They invest for a whole lot of impact objectives. Why should investors invest any differently? Right? Um, sidebar letters that create special provisions and protections, especially when you discover a certain kinds of condition. Uh, investment representations, uh, particular remedies that are contractually mandated. Uh, clawbacks, uh, anti-retaliation regulation, and transparency. You know, the big one is transparency in terms of it, because the more people know about it, like in the hashtag movement, the less likely it is to propagate as a behavior, right? What are the kinds of things you can do from an incentivizing perspective? Um, you can um, change your selection criteria. You can create special incentives. You can create set-aside pools. You can create a bonus for impact. You can create recognitions and prizes, you know, recognize people. You can add people on nomination committees. You can ensure on diversity in decision-making rules. You can add in contingent liabilities for the risk associated with it. And you can make sure you have applicant requirements. And finally, in terms of social and cultural transformation, you can have bias and bystander training. 
Turns out one of the best things you can do is not necessarily to train individuals about things like sexual harassment, but to train bystanders. Because eventually, if we move as a community and we support each other, we will get much better results than when people try and do things in isolation. But it means thinking about more than just your personal incentive. It means thinking about your responsibility and your duty to the social framework and to public good. Right? Obviously, better data, monitoring, and, 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 and metrics, uh, company dialogues, uh, encouraging governments to support diverse entrepreneurship, better preparing women uh, on how to seek funding and how to negotiate, and I should say women and um, disadvantaged communities. You know, education, always a good thing to have. Building ecosystems to support people, implement policies that have an enabling effect and address social and cultural norms, right? What is my conclusion here? My conclusion is all stakeholders have a part to play to close the gap. We cannot do this unless each one of us takes responsibility to do it. And that is kind of what we try to do at Equals, is you bring together a coalition, a global coalition of players worldwide to try and address it. So I'm going to finish from, with a beautiful quote from 1932, so you can see how many years this has been around. When Kuznets did his landmark, I don't know how many of you are students of economics, but you know I'm a closet economist. My father, who is an economist, says I'm not a real economist because I got an MBA. I didn't actually get an economics degree, but that's a different story. When Kuznets did his landmark work on GDP calculation for the US government back in 1932, he um, unfortunately found it very hard to account for housewives, you know, the goods and services that housewives provide, right? I mean, here's somebody who washes your clothes, cooks your food, takes care of your children, cleans your house, massages your feet, and that's what I do for my husband anyway. And, and, and yet, they're not counted in GDP calculations. And so Paul Samuelson, commented, another famous economist, he said, when a man marries his maid, the GDP falls. You know, he was making a very deep point that we as a society define value and reward it. That is how social norms get set. And we are only as good as this calculus we create. And therefore, we must continually re-examine and evolve it. And we must ask ourselves the hard questions. For instance, why is it that today daycare in the United States is barely tax deductible, not tax deductible for all intents and purposes if you consider the cost of child care, but private equity firms still continue to pay less than corporate taxes. In fact, in some cases, they pay zero taxes by you know, routing it around the Caymans, et cetera. My point is, we have, as a society, by creating those rules, defined value in a certain way. We have said it's better to be a private equity titan than to be a housewife, because bringing up children is not a valuable contribution to society. And when we do that, we change our destinies. So with this, I will end my talk with the idea that each of you take the responsibility to go out there and do your bit to make sure that we as a society are defining value correctly and rewarding it correctly. Thank you.
That was a brilliant analysis, Geetanjali, and you asked one of the hard questions that we had posed earlier in the day. And when a man marries his maid, the GDP falls, but now many women are marrying stay-at-home husbands who hopefully, hopefully are playing the role of, you know, a maid, a male maid. And I wonder what happens to the GDP then. Right. And so I think the bigger issue is not whether it's a man or a woman, though back in 1932 the assumption was that it was women who were going to stay at home, but that we as a society need to value well. things that benefit society, right? Um, my, um, I always have these heated debates with pe uh, you know, um, many of my friends, in fact, Usually they run the other way when they see me come. It's like, oh, damn, another debate coming up. But um, no, one of the debates that I have is why is it that we don't, we always pay people who work in, 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 in non-profits very small salaries, right? We don't reward them, um, you know, disproportionately. But we reward people who blow up the financial system <laughs> with CDOs with huge bonuses. I said, do you realize the perverse incentive that we are creating here? We're essentially saying that you get more money for being bad than for being good. Absolutely. You know, does that mean that we're essentially incentivizing society to go to hell in a handbasket? Now, the first speaker, um, you know, uh, Craig of Craigslist said, well, this will all rectify itself because when you make enough money, you'll give back to society. I don't believe that. I believe that it should be possible in human society to do good and make money. Because if it is not possible and we don't desire society to do that, we'll keep trending towards disaster and have to dig ourselves out of it. And let me make no comments about political situations at this point. So we have Reva Ragupati, who is going to be, I wanted to come forward, I wanted to come and take a seat with us. Reva is going to be our chief uh, student discussant leader. And her own background is very interesting. So Reva, I want you to talk a little bit about your own background and uh, ask a question and then moderate the discussion. Yes. Over there. Thank you so much. Um, and before I start with my background, can I say what an amazing day this has been? because we've seen the entire spectrum of all the things that need to happen. We've had people talking about allowing people to be seen because they don't have an identity. We've talked about land issues. We've talked about unicorns, you know, women who are out there and fighting the fight to get funded. And we had this brilliant talk by you, bringing in the data, kind of showing uh, all the things that need to happen, all of the above, right? So I think in the course of a day, um, I'm probably speaking for everybody when I say that, just that ability to see the whole spectrum of all of the above has been such a treat. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Reva, because that was our idea. In looking at inclusion as a transformative uh, tool, we needed to look at the whole spectrum yeah. of issues. Yeah, so that was phenomenal. Thank you. Uh, so just quickly, my background, I actually started out as a researcher. I started out in science. I got a PhD. I worked in academia. Then I came to Wharton, to business school, and went to work for a large Fortune 500 company where I stayed for 20 years. And I just exited uh, earlier this year because for the last few years, I've been really wanting to move into the social impact space. And for me, the pivotal moment was when I did a fellowship in global health. I was placed with two nonprofits in India. 
And everybody needs an entry because you say, I want to do something different. But you kind of have to figure out where's that doorway for me to go and move to something different. So for me, that allowed me to say, wow, OK, this is where I start. And then I found out about social entrepreneurship. The Center for Social Impact Strategy, if I can plug them at Penn, they do a phenomenal job of training uh, social entrepreneurs all over the world. Mm -hmm. And that is their uh, give back, because they do it at very uh, reasonable cost, and then now I'm doing the master's program, continuing with that. So I'm very young in sort of wanting to be, I'm, I want to be a social entrepreneur, but that's that's my background, so. Thanks, you. So, uh, so the question that I, I kind of wanted to raise, and, and actually your presentation was so thorough that it doesn't <laughs> leave too much room for questions. Once an academic, always an academic. That's <laughs> usually how it's it works. true, that is. I loved when people Slides but you're also data. a serial entrepreneur, so you bring the two together. Yes, there I'm, is that dialectic. I mean, an active uh, academic who likes to practice on the real world. That's sort yeah. of how I put it. And that's that's sort of the best best combination. So one of the questions I have is, if you could see one or two really bold moves happening, certainly we need all of the above, all those things to happen. Mm -hmm. But if you said here are one or two things that could really disrupt things. Because we heard from you, why are we having this conversation in 2018? We heard 25 years ago we were seeing the same data. This is, I know, a really impossible question almost, but what are one or two really disruptive things that could change things? So um, that's actually one thing that has changed over the last year. And I think you know, when you look at something like the hashtag MeToo movement, it suddenly reminds you of this. Um, you know, we are lucky to live in a democracy, in one of the most wonderful countries in the world that has a constitution and a framework of laws. But those laws and that constitution is only as good as the populace that uses it, which means that you have to learn to advocate and articulate and fight for the rights of not just yourself, but for the future you want for the nation. And I think that the most important thing I'm, I'm coming to the conclusion is, is to enable people with both that sense of values as well as the tools to fight for a better future. I mean, take business school as an example. You know, For years, and, and this has been you know, one of my big debates with my professors at Harvard, is Michael Jensen came out with this philosophy back in the 80s where he said, well, you don't have to do good and make money. It's too complicated. You don't have to, as a corporation, be worried about the environment and diversity and all these things. My god, you're going to be schizophrenic trying to think about all these problems. So he came up with this philosophy, which Wall Street absolutely loved, which was, don't bother about it. You either do good or you do you know, make money. But don't try and mix the two of them, because it's too hard to do that. And therefore, as a corporation, your only responsibility is to profitability and shareholder value add, right? Now, God, the, world, the, the, share, the, the Wall Street, the corporate world, absolutely fell in love with it. Because it simplified their tasks. I did not have to go through all this soul searching and say, am I doing the right thing? Right? I did not have to worry about the long term. Right? And we changed business. We shifted it 
from you know, the earlier era where the businessman was the steward of public good. He, where he was responsible for, he or she was responsible for the community around them. And we suddenly created this you know, really simplified you know, bipolar logic. And over a period of 20 years, 20, 30 years, we suddenly saw the world around us change because we wrote a letter of indulgence, right? So indulgence, a letter of indulgence, that's the only way to describe it. And I think that we have to go back, and the most important thing we can do is to go back and make people aware that you have a greater responsibility and that it is possible to do both these things. And I think just seeing the, the manifestation of that in different ways to get to that critical mass is actually interesting. You know, you see all the ways in which Companies are being more socially responsible. They're reporting on that. They're being held accountable to that. And maybe it's just the start, but at least you hear a lot of that happening in the conversation, right? So do you see that as a, a good positive trend, or do you think we have a really long way to go? I think that? it is a positive trend, and I think people are beginning to realize that the equation doesn't work the other way around, Yeah. right? You cannot pollute as much as you want right and then say wait i'll give back a donation to corporate social responsibility and you know what i'm free and clear because guess what there is a law of entropy in this universe and the law of entropy means that if you do bad to make money or gain resources there is no amount of good you will do that will undo it right and that's what we have to start realizing. But it's really tough, I've got to tell you. Because if you're in a business field competing against somebody else that doesn't follow all the rules and you're following all the rules, then you're always going to be hampered, right? So what we, the only way we can stop that is, that's why we create a framework of laws, right? I mean, I had this discussion with the dean of Harvard Business, Nitin Nori, about four days ago. And he said, you can't force people to do the right thing. I said, we do that already as a society. We decided that murder was wrong, and we made a law there that murder was wrong, and now if you murder someone, society as a whole decides to go there and put you on the electric chair. I said, we force people to do, to do, do the right thing. Otherwise, they're just given to their natural impulses and go around murdering people, which is very good for Genghis Khan, by the way. He really did benefit from that strategy. My point is, <laughs> this is in our hands. We can choose to decide the future we want, and we can legislate it. We can, we can fight for it. We can work at creating business models that realize it. You know, this is something that we as a, as, 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 as a society have to make the commitment to do. And I think it starts with the school. Yeah, yeah absolutely right. Now, I have one follow-up. And then I'm sure there might be other questions in the room, if that's OK. Um, so the follow-up I have is then people sometimes get around that by just going across borders, right? So strengthening those frameworks across borders then becomes the next challenge, right? Because right. your supply chains are global now. Yeah, so that's a good question, right? And, and so my argument is that all what goes around comes around, right? And, 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 and so I think that you know, it's, 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 it's a dangerous route to think in terms of, and, and again, you know, actually, let me say this differently. Law, the, the framework of laws is a rule-based system. And rule-based systems by design are incomplete. Because for whatever you come up with the rule, I can find you a corner case that doesn't quite fit in that rule, 
This is one of the things I learned about legal education. You can always find a way around it, which means that you have to continuously go back and re-examine what are the boundaries you put in place. I'm not a great fan of protectionism. I do think that we live in a capitalist economy, and in the right way, it will work. So the question is, what are the kinds of fine-tuning I can do in order to ensure that you know, we still manage to be competitive? A classic example of this kind of fine-tuning will be the sudden interest in organic foods. Right? You can change through you know, perception, brand value, a lot of different tools, uh, things, the value, you know, this comes down to that equation of, you know, it's a question of what we value, you know, and so we reward what we value. Mm -hmm. And then conversely, um, you know, we, we, we start uh, valuing what we reward, mm -hmm. right? So for us, it's a matter of continuously going back and changing those boundaries of what is it that we reward. And uh, so I think that there are things that can be done that do not necessarily border on protectionism. Mm -hmm. And I love that because you have so much balance in that answer, right? And it does come down to that because it's how do you balance business interests as well as environmental interests as well as social interests so that, you know, it, it's not pointing fingers, but it's really thinking about how all of those move Come together. The same it's time, an ecosystem, right? absolutely. It takes, you know, everybody thinks management is easy. You just get a degree from a top business school and suddenly you're a manager. It's not. Management is about balance. It's about understanding where am I going to draw the line because there's no perfect line. So your skill comes down in exactly deciding this is where, at this context, in this place or time, I'm going to draw the line, right? And, and, and we have to be continuously um, you know, uh, re-examining it yeah. and deciding, should I move this a little more? And that's the debate that we as a democracy have in society, right? That's why we need to have a debate. Um, this is why I have argued that it is equally important to hear out what the alt-right says. It's very important to hear them speak. You may not agree with them, but you've got to argue it out with them with logic and force them down with logic. You, know, you cannot just shut out people. So I think we have five more minutes for a few questions. Yes. Hi, uh, thank you so much for the great panel. I'm like Gitanjia, or sorry, did I, Gitanjali? Gita. Okay, Call me Gita, Gita. it's easy. Um, it's user I'm like, I want to be you when I grow up, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just sitting here like right now. Um, so uh, this actually was originally um, a question um, that You're one I, of our law students, right? Sorry? You are a law student. No, I'm from the School of Social Policy and Practice. Oh, okay. um, we all are, yep. Um, and I'm also here representing um, a different organization too as well. But um, So this was originally a question for Craig, um, but we just didn't uh, get time to, and it actually should be asked of a man. Yes. Um, but you know, I think that it's still applicable given what was said in the last panel as well as um, the, the points you kind of, the three points you had made about changing the system. Um, so, you know, Rankita, I think you made a really good point about how you can use male privilege to um, create change. Um, and, um, you know, I agree that men using male privilege is one important tactic 
um, towards, uh, you know, addressing the stark disparity, particularly the disparity, you know, among black women. Um, you know, but one of the hazards that I think with this model is that well-intentioned, especially white men, um, can inadvertently end up uh, perpetuating the cycle of oppression, you know, by focusing only on funding women, as opposed to actually dismantling, like, the social structures among uh, VCs and among, um, you know, decision makers, you know, who are perpetuating the cycle of inclusion. So, so I guess the question mainly is, you know, in addition to continuing to fund women, which we should be doing, and besides just funding women and even just giving people the positions that they deserve, um, you know, what do you feel are strategic, initial, concrete steps that you feel men should be taking? Um, they'll be effective in beginning to knock down this social structure, particularly within these old boys clubs, you know, that ultimately hold up, you know, the exclusion of women. So um, I should, you know, um, make a representation here. I get on very well with old white men. There must be something wrong with me. But some of my best mentors have been old white men who belong to the old boys club. And I think the thing that has stood out about those men and that I have really appreciated is that they have the intelligence to want to understand something that is different, right? And I have driven them nuts at times, and I have had arguments with them, and I have, you know, on occasion, you know, got almost into fistcups arguing, you know, the whole, whole issue with gender. But at the end of the day, I appreciated the fact that they had the intelligence to want to, want to understand that what is different. And I think the only, the biggest piece of advice I can give old men is that, that is the best thing you can do. You know, listen and understand the causes of the differences. Appreciate the differences, value the differences, and embrace the differences. I hopefully that answered your question wasn't too vague, right? Is it? Other questions? Yes. Sorry, also from SB2. Um, I'm in the Masters of Science and Nonprofit Leadership Program. How would you, as business leaders, um, well, both of you, um, suggest that those of us who are in the nonprofit leadership sector, nonprofit sector, social impact, social impact sector, um, create a bridge to business leaders, to venture capitalists uh, that are really interested in investing in different innovations, but maybe don't have access to the talent because they're not in the, let's say, in the business circle. And the good old boys are in the angel investor circle. So actually, you know, the, um, the fastest growing category today in the investment business is actually ESG, social impact. It is yes. the fastest growing investment category. Now, I was doing social impact, you know, before the term was coined, because I was working with a company called Fab India out in India. We were doing community-owned mm -hmm. companies mm -hmm. for artisans who were out in, in, in villages in India. Which you is know. now, you know, Fab, that's the biggest. Yes, yeah, it is now. Yeah. In those days, you know, we were trying to do, but we had a very good business reason for doing it, right? It was backward integration of the supply chain. So we, you know, created these community-owned companies. I was an investor in it. I was on the board of it. And we were essentially working with, you know, people out in villages in India. It was very exciting. But it was a very good business proposition. I think that it's a mindset to say that business is different. In fact, today, last week when I was at the UNPRI conference, uh, TPG, this is like 
you know, the, the shark of all private equity firms. I mean, it can get more scary than that, right? These are the corporate, original corporate raiders. Uh, actually, he got up there on the panel and they said, with a straight face, to this audience of about 100 people, 200, no, actually it's 1,000 people, um, with a straight face, they said, all our investments are ESG now, right? Which, by the way, tells you just how exciting this is. So I think that it's, you know, it comes down to this thing whereby it isn't something different. It should be part of both our philosophies. So, you know, it's, it's, so, so part of it is, also, is, is really an issue of language, right? Why did I put all these numbers up here? Because while I know that things like diversity are a moral issue, you know, there's a, as Craig put it, there's an issue of fairness. This is not fair. There is a logic to morality, right? And we've got to deconstruct that logic. What I find when I work with people that are in the social sector is that they're talking the language of emotions, which everybody feels, but they're not going to the logic of translating that into what were the economic reasons why that's the case. There's a very strong reason for diversity. If we were all exactly the same, one single virus would wipe out the entire human race, right? We have diversity because there's a very good economic reason for it. So I think I would say put in the effort to bridge that gap in languages because that is what both sides need to be doing. Thank you, Gitanjali. And on that note, I'm going to ask Reva to wrap up because I think she has sat in the whole day and she's really absorbed the, the best values of this institute. So I want her to give us a sense of you know, what, what you've absorbed and how you think we can go forward, Reva. Thank you. Thank you so much. Again, you know, I can't tell you how much of a privilege it's been to sit in this room and listen to the various panel members. Again, because of the, so the breadth of the places they come from, right? They come from development, they come from finance, they come from venture capital, they come from business. And just to bring, to exemplify the fact that to solve really tough problems, that it really takes a partnership. So that's such a real sort of exemplification of that. And also the fact that even though this is housed in the law school, that you can see that we are people from SB2, social policy and practice, there's law, there's business. And again, exemplifying it in that way and bringing people together within the university has, I think, made it a fantastic day. I think each and every one of your speakers has brought in you know, so much food for thought. I think we're all like, we've all been absorbing all day. And I must also say that as a mother of two boys, two now adult boys, that I really appreciate the talking about gender as inclusiveness, right? Because all of us need to succeed. We all have different struggles that we face, et cetera. There are certain huge inequities that we're trying to address, but at the same time not create other inequities as well. And so I saw that thematically come out as well in your panels and how they spoke, et cetera. So I, I think it's been a fantastic day. I believe this is the first time you've done it. I hope you have many, many more of these. So thank you for the opportunity. Right. And with that, Reva, I want to acknowledge the support of uh, Penn Global. And the head of Penn Global, Amy Gadsden, Dr. Gadsden is sitting behind. She is the one who really helped to support this institute and many others that's going to flow out of this institute. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for, uh, for your vision. Thank you for always being a friend. Thank you for being such a supporter.
supporter and encouraging in so many different ways. Thank